Welcome to the Media Mavens Podcast, brought to you by the Evergreen Network. The Media Mavens Podcast is where you'll hear the latest and greatest trends, topics, and tribulations with industry leaders. And here is your host of the Media Mavens Podcast. She is the original Media Maven, Sarah Miller. Hi, this is Sarah Miller, Media Mavens Podcast, here with my co-host, Joe Pirates. Hey, Joe, what's up? Ah, uh, we're doing really good here on a Saturday. It's nice right. to nice to do a podcast on a Saturday. This is kind of not our usual podcast day, but super excited because Media Mavis podcast has some big news right now. We are picked up by a huge network, so we're super excited to be on Megaphone. Not to give a little advertising push there, but we're super excited for all of our listeners out there that have been following us and tuning in. But we are dropping our first series, and so I'm excited that we are all up early, late, because this is a global podcast with our space panel. I like to call these guys Gardens of the Galaxy, and I think they all know from our previous podcast with them how funny that is and my obsession with this. But our series is on revolutionizing the future of space tourism. And I probably have, there's a lot of great people out there, Joey, but I have four of the biggest badasses I've met in the space industry. And I'm super excited to have these guys on here. You know, so I want to welcome, you know, Angelo, Christopher, Dan, Raphael, welcome to the show this morning. So here's what we're going to (laughs) do. Hello, it's a podcast. Everybody's on mute for podcast purposes, but technically then it's like, wait, is anybody listening up there or down there? So here's what we're going to do. I'm going to let you guys kind of tell us about what's going on. We have you guys here on the podcast, Angelo from Mulan. I don't want to sit there and mess up names and introduce everybody. We've all chatted before. This is, we're wrapping up a tremendous new series. I Tell us, you know, who you are, what you're working on real quickly, because I want all of you guys to kind of start off so we know who's doing what right now. Why don't we go alphabetically by first name? So it'll be Angelo, Christopher, Dan, and then Raphael. So I'm Angelo, good. you're on. Okay. Hi, I'm Angelo Vermeulen. That's the way to pronounce my surname. I'm actually a biologist, a space systems researcher, and I'm also a visual artist. And I am um, very interested in transdisciplinary research, really crossing boundaries between disciplines and using that approach to rethink the future and also to question paradigms that we embrace in how we envision the future and turn things upside down. So I have a very big interest in terms of space to look at advanced concepts, new ideas for future space systems. Now, the guiding principle here is for me is biology. I am a biologist, that was my first training. I have a PhD in ecology and developmental biology and I'm actually applying that knowledge in space and I'm applying it in different ways, but just to briefly summarize it, on one hand, I'm really working on bioregenerative life support systems. These are like artificial ecosystems that can keep people alive during long periods of time in deep space. And on the other hand, I'm very interested in bio-inspired engineering, basically building infrastructure, machines, systems that behave as if they're organisms, systems that actually adapt and evolve over time, because that's what I think we need if we want to venture further into deep space. Perfect. Chris? Good morning. My name, or good evening, depending on where you are. My name is Christopher Mick. I run a uh, STEAM educational nonprofit here in Hudson, Wisconsin called Space St. Croix. We do uh, free on-site programs to all the public, private, and homeschool programs here in the area. I'm also a NASA solar system ambassador, so that opens me up to the region. We're right on the border with Minnesota, so I do programs at planetariums and science museums and libraries and things in the region under that banner. 
And then I also am a uh, educator with the Civil Air Patrol and uh, do programs with them, trying to promote careers in, in aviation and drones and things like that to young students in the area. So some of Angela's work is really inspiring to me because I do some of that with the kids where we have actually worked with uh, hydroponics, trying to get the kids to experiment with programs like Tomato Sphere and whatnot to experiment with the energy efficiency and the least amount of water that you can get healthy plants with and things like that, working toward space applications for the moon and Mars and, and consumables up on the International Space Station and recycling water and things like that. So uh, it's it's fun to kind of introduce that information to the kids here where they kind of see what what work is going on in the scientific community and they can kind of take part and that contribute some data to that with their experiments and whatnot. So I kind of cover the end of working with a lot of kids in the region and just promoting information and careers they may not be familiar with and kind of steam fields and, and moving forward with that. So very excited to be here. And we noticed the collection of spaceships in the background and oh, rocket yes. ships. Yes. <laughs> Chris and, works amongst all of the space. And I have a new one that I haven't oh. gotten to yet. So I wow. Well, we got a Lego project going. Yeah, this just arrived. So uh, I'm, I'm <laughs> a space I'm putting... shuttle. A space shuttle has arrived in the Midwest. Yes. Yes. Dan <laughs> Lopez is up in front of one right now. Dan, what's going on with you? Tell everybody what yeah. you're working on over there. I'm Dan Lopez. I'm the chief strategy officer for a company called Arcasis. We are the brainchild of a, a bunch of efforts that came out of DARPA. So all the, the interesting and quacky things that come out of DARPA, we are something that, especially Angelo had mentioned something around using biology as inspiration. So we look at cellular morphology or, or decomposing architectures in order to find its most efficient ways of aggregating and building large structures. We looked at biology to do that. And, and oddly enough, we found as we modeled our systems over time, we, we saw the Fibonacci sequence several times. So pretty wild. We're, we're building something that models nature like that. My background, again, is uh, computational biology years and years ago when I had hair. Fast forward <laughs> to help support the Defense Department and intelligence communities, help start up a bunch of companies and take them public, and chased after bad guys like polio, malaria, and Zika with uh, satellite imagery for, for several years and help start space companies along the way. So that's me. Perfect. Rafael? I'm Raphael. I'm sadly not a rocket scientist or even a space <laughs> biologist. I'm, my background is in financial markets, so I like to say I, I, I try to provide the, the money so the other three guys who are clearly way smarter than me can realize their projects, and, <laughs> and hopefully I succeed in that occasionally. So I run a venture capital firm that's dedicated to the space sector. It's called E2MC Ventures. E2MC actually stands for Earth to Mars Capital, sort of portraying our, our ambition. And I'm also involved in the space sector in a few other mostly outreach functions. I have my own podcast called the Space Business Podcast, where I usually interview space entrepreneurs, but sometimes other people. So the last guest was actually NASA's chief scientist, Dr. James Green. It's a real fun episode. I teach on space finance and entrepreneurship at a couple of universities and and, and generally try to do a lot about uh, space education. Talk about space outreach. I'd also like to remind everybody that we're just around the time when it's the 60th anniversary of the first man in space, Yuri Gagarin. Actually, technically, it's going to be in, in two days, 12th of April, 1961, the Vostok 1 mission. Ah, so see, it's good timing. I had all my Guardians of the Galaxy on this podcast. We're making history. You guys are amazing. I don't even know where I would want to start. I know we have a few questions for you guys, and I just feel like there's such there's so many threads that tie 
all of you guys together from the biological standpoint to like working together for sustainability up there. Joe, I'm going to like let you drive because you have some pretty good questions for these guys as well. But guys, like this is amazing work you've done. And I want to talk about the sustainability because I feel like there's been a good tie here. And Raphael, like, like there's so many space people out there trying to get into the industry, startups, technology. So I think from the funding standpoint and the strategy standpoint of how to get them off the literally off the ground and up there is tremendous to have your input on this as well. But I'm seeing some themes here, Joe. I don't know where to start. Oh, you know, know. I'm going to go down to what is your favorite scientific binge watch on Netflix? So I'm going to wait for the fun stuff at the end. Okay, let's start off and I'll, I'll address this to Christopher right now. And then you guys can add in whatever you need. We're about 24 hours away from preservance and the, the drone that's going to be lifting off on Mars. How significant is that? Because uh, we've seen it kind of compared to the Wright brothers' first flight. Is this very significant or is this just another small step in um, our space exploration? I think it could be hugely significant uh, if it's successful, obviously, is the big you know question mark. There's a 30-day window that we're approaching where there's going to be the attempted uh, flights for the Ingenuity helicopter. So thus far, those that have been following along, the deployment has gone very well. There was a multi-step process because the those that aren't familiar with the helicopter was stowed underneath the rover. So there was a belly pan kind of protective area and that cover had to be dropped. And then at several stages of kind of deploying it and dropping it on the surface and then it had to survive its first night on its own on the surface where it can get down to uh, about minus 130 degrees Fahrenheit. That test went well. And so it's been this incremental steps going forward with the uh, this first scheduled flight for tomorrow happening. So if that goes well, the way they anticipate, I think it could be huge because it, it almost ties back to if we can go way back for a second to the 90s when we were getting our first, you know, the Sojourner rover was the first rover. And that was kind of the same thing for back then. That was a demonstration of could a mobile science station have benefit on Mars? Because everything had been a lander or an orbiter or a flyby, uh, you know, up to that point. And that was a very small little demonstration rover. And uh, that was wildly successful. And that paved the way for opportunity and spirit and now curiosity and perseverance to follow. And the rovers have obviously gotten larger and more science on them and greater distances. And uh, we've learned so much. And so I think this is that next step looking towards if this works, it's a very small, it's only about a four pound, the weight of the vehicle. And uh, if it works over that that 30-day kind of test program, that's going to open up the doors for a, a larger version to be sent on a future mission. And then if you look to when astronauts would be arriving, I think people can kind of guess at how that might be an aid to have it just like we use drones here on Earth. If you could send a scout out to go reconnoiter the area on where you might want to be looking for resources or to explore and it can save you that time and get back to you that visual information. And then you can kind of plan your exploration route in your rover or on foot based on that data. That's going to be a huge benefit to maximizing your, your time on the surface. Can I add a few things? Yes, yeah. please, please. I think the comparison with the Wright brothers is, is, is terrific from a storytelling perspective. It really works well to communicate engineering to a bigger audience. But I don't think it's the most significant aspect of the whole thing. I think to me personally, and I'm, I'm almost sure that Dan might um, might agree with me, uh, there, there are basically two things. First of all, we badly needed 
to move towards more autonomous systems. And that's where AI comes in, of course. And the whole idea of having that helicopter just visualize the space and, and, and help the rover to make local decisions and to make to advance using that local information mm-hmm. without relying on a very detailed command from, from Earth is really significant. I mean, the first rovers, every single movement was pre-programmed uh, from Earth. And having systems that are more autonomous is going gonna, is gonna to allow us to explore much more. But it took engineers quite a while before they were moving in that direction of autonomy. It's, it's risky. Sending a very expensive device to another planet and giving it autonomy and then hoping that it'll it'll do what it has to do, it can go wrong. So I think moving towards autonomy is a really big uh, big game changer. And I think this is part of that story. And secondly, and that, that's why I was referring to Dan, we're moving into the in, into the domain of advanced concepts here. These are uh, a helicopter on Mars is maybe is, is like an idea that was brought up maybe 10, 15 or 20 years ago. I don't know the history of the project, but there are other beautiful ideas coming from advanced concepts. For example, building a submarine that would fly to Titan and then submerge into the liquid methane oceans there. I mean, but it's a little frustrating if you're working in advanced concepts to see how little of those concepts are actually being built and developed. And so I'm happy to see something different than a, a typical rover and to, yeah, that some risk is being taken in the world of science and, and so, engineering. So we're not talking like helicopter, we're talking like these more advanced drones, just to clarify. Are you guys, I mean, if you're looking at what's to scale that you're transporting up there, am I right or wrong on this? One of it's, it's, it's actually a helicopter. I just want to make sure, because if we, if we say drone, most people are going to imagine like the typical drones we have these days, which is like, you know, a, a quadcopter or, or even like something with, with eight rotors. That's not okay. the case here. This looks much more like a regular helicopter, except it doesn't have a tail rotor. It actually has two counter-rotating blades. That's why it can stay into one place. Very good. You can see, see, you can see the two this blades. This is what I love about the podcast, but nobody else knows. Good photo of a space helicopter, Chris. Of yes. ingenuity, yes. Exactly. So you can see the two. Is this actually, I'm hoping this is a video podcast, by the way. Otherwise, we're kind of talking about something people can't <laughs> see here. But anyway, you have the two counter-rotating blades, and that's why the thing can stay in one place. And you know, personally, I think this is really significant. I mean, look. This compared to the rover, the rover is obviously great, right? But it's like somehow, like if you compare exploring your neighborhood, walking around versus somebody giving you a helicopter, there's obviously many more things, much more area you can cover. You can also start probing the atmosphere, right? Because you can fly into the atmosphere. Now, Angelo just, just mentioned Titan, and that's actually really important to bring up here because in many ways, the Ingenuity mission is a test mission for something that's supposed to happen in a few years, which is going to call, be called Dragonfly where we intend, well, NASA intends to bring a much bigger helicopter to Titan to explore the atmosphere here. So again, very, very exciting. I think this is, this is towards the end of the decade that that's planned. And, and Angela was also mentioning submarines. And, and, and yes, I mean, it looks like we might be actually seeing more and more uh, types of vehicles on other planets. Um, another place where we're planning potentially for a submarine is, is Europa, the moon of, of Jupiter. Dan. Just to uh, round out the first line of questioning here, Again, where Angelo had mentioned, it's the quest for autonomy. We're, we're building, much like the Wright brothers, we're building currently a, a stepwise function roadmap where you didn't start building a, a jumbo jet. You started with the mechanics behind what you needed to do to understand the, the principles of flight. But then you quickly iterated through and the, the sheer pace and magnitude of innovation that happened after one epoch, if you will, 
there is no looking back when that stuff happens. You're like, oh yeah, it, it was meant to be. Like the iPhone, we all take the iPhone for granted. And it was a convergence of a, a bunch of things happening at the same time. We look back at 15 years ago and someone who says, I'm going to land a rocket, a first stage rocket back on Earth, that, that was the dumbest idea ever. And now if you don't do that, that's the dumbest idea ever. So if you look at what we're building right now, the hexagonal module that we're building as an autonomous space station, if you will, space outpost, that's not the end thing. That is to do what Angelo is saying, is to test out different technologies and, and create the ability to make decisions far away. We're not going to go build a space station in Martian orbit right away. We want to build all the autonomy up front which we're doing right now, we have a bunch of intelligent agents that we've built that are fairly robust and fascinating to even just watch do what they do already. But the simple things of like plugging in a printer to your computer, that just works these days. But there was a time when you got a message like PC load letter, and who knows what that means, but your printer doesn't work. We can't have that in space. We can't have things coming and going from autonomous space stations that don't know how to work with each other or Celery devices. So we're building all of that stuff right now very quickly. We will have that stepwise function once we are on orbit in two years. There is the possibility of proliferation that is unprecedented with the access to space that we hope to, one, instantiate, but then incentivize with the existence of the technology. Same thing with a simple helicopter on Mars. That ability to make decisions by itself will then allow other people who want to create the same kind of idea, but maybe it's a rover of some kind. It's really interesting to see all of this stuff play out right now. So I noticed on your website, I mean, I noticed looking at Arcasis right now, you know, I know you guys are helping these companies with these missions, you know, build up their, make sure they're sustainable, make sure their projects are seen through. I know you guys have a robotics arm to all of this with all the AI and technology, but you have an area that says mission, like I think it's a booking request. Is that because for people who are working on these advanced missions, they need the help from, is it from like from Raphael, is it from getting the funding to do what they need to do, then taking that funding, going to Arcasis and saying, hey guys, we gotta go up there, we have the funding, but we need you guys to build and get us up there and help us plan out how the architect of what we need to build out and what the purpose is. I mean, do you guys make those decisions, Dan, of say yes or no, this is not a good mission, it is a good mission, taking all this into account or? Yeah, yeah, that's a great question. The onboarding process that we've built is, if you go to say a rocket company and they say, if you wanna send something to space, fill out this form and off you go. You can't just go send an elephant to space. That would be a bad idea. Um, There's lots of legal reasons why you don't wanna do that. but you would be able to define what you're trying to do. And then our side comes back and says, yes, this is feasible in some form or fashion. We then get into a mode of saying, what are you trying to do? Is it a commercial operation? Is it a a government-sponsored initiative? Is it more fundamental science? Is it a part of our... Archicist has stood up a science director to, to deal with SBIR, STTR type work so that that's a major industry all to itself. The, the market size is pretty big. Where you used to have one destination for going to the ISS, those principal investigators were trying to, to democratize access to, to space. So someone like Christopher can go and take a bunch of people who want to go to space and 
say, a, a tomato experiment or whatever it might be in genetics or Angelo looks at biofilm as a way to remediate gnarly things on the ISS that happen with things. I, I think that's where we can quickly tell you, is this feasible? Get you up to space and then conduct your experimentation. And much of that experimentation does not require humans in the loop. That's the, the other fascinating thing. We can actually do this at a cadence that doesn't take a year to get approved by NASA or a three-party agreement, four-party agreement with Roscosmos even. Those are crazy ideas that we can get into space in 90 days. So that's really, really unprecedented to, to be able to follow the, the suit of so many different launch logistics coming online when we are trying to uh, create resupply missions to our infrastructure. It, it provides a mechanism for people to think really now outside the box of what they have access to. Okay, so uh, this brings to another question. You know, it's not that easy just to head up there. So if I have a thought or an idea, I have, it's a collaborative issue with really everybody on this panel or on this call right now. You know, you guys all have a say in from the funding to the strategy to what is your idea? How is it sustainable? It's got to help better revolutionize space, commerce, or sustainability. So this whole process is not as easy as, hey, I'm one of these big space companies and I have an idea. They, it really is a team effort on the ground between all of you guys and respect of other agencies that I know are out there to really start these missions. So it's not like, hey, like rocket science, fill out a form. I want to go up and then just fund it. There's so much more to this than, I mean, we talked about this, I believe, with Chris. I think Angela and I talked about this. We know we did it with Henrik on the asteroid defense. There is, I call it space litter. Like all these parts that float off. We've talked about some of these subjects. This is really a thought through 360 plan from what are you setting up there? Is it going to be damaging to satellites, other space exploration, other areas that NASA, other governments are working on down to how long, what are you going to do? What are the results up there? Because they've all have to be up there testing or running some project that's going to give you guys results back on the ground. I mean, is that kind of the full circle with all of you guys, how the process works? I think you could. that's basically one of the one of the crucial characteristics of new space this this new space economy that's been that's been developing over uh, since a couple of years is that space companies are offering services now and if you want to run experiments it's it boils down to two main challenges it's paperwork lots and lots of paperwork and secondly your hardware your hardware needs to get certified you don't want to have an experiment explode or do something unexpected and dangerous for the astronauts up there. And so there are companies that are like, hey, we can take care of the paperwork. So you can just focus on the experiment. And when you're developing your hardware, we have references, we have experience, we can guide you through the process. And that's why what Dan just said, things can be sped up to like in three months, you get something up in space. It took quite some time before we figured out that this was actually a really interesting new model. This is an approval process, like FDA, just kind of to go down the vaccines of COVID. It has to go through FDA and testing to make sure, obviously, it's safe for humans. Do you guys, and I think, Raphael, this is for you on the um, funding side. If I have a Nova Star, I want to shoot up in space. I actually have to make sure the products, whether it's nuts, the bolts, the metal sheets, everything on this ship has to go through like a space great approval process before, I mean, is there something out there that's overseen like an FDA approval for 
certain things that kind of approves what you can and cannot use to send up there? Well, the other guys can chime in. I think that depends a little bit on the country and who you fly with. But I think no rocket launcher to start would would take anything up that you think could pose a, a risk to the overall mission. Remember, many times you're not flying by yourself. You're flying together with other customers, right? So there's one bad actor which has unsafe payload that's that could cause a lot of trouble. Yeah. This is for you because you're looking, you know, you guys are a VC firm for these companies. You actually have to make sure all the due diligence before you give them the money to go up as well. Are these all oh, the sure. I mean, we, we, we run technical due diligence, of course, on whatever that's there. Now, in our specific case, we invest at the seed stage. So many times, the, if not most times, the product is under development still, right? So actually, probably most situations where we invest, nothing has flown to space yet. It, it will only fly to space in the future. One thing to note here, I, and I spent many eons with uh, working with the ISS. Human spaceflight prevents many experimentation efforts to actually go online. A, a simple thing is like irradiating fruit fly brains to see what radiation does to cellular tissue for, for brains. You can't do that with uh, humans, especially uh, humans that cost about $250,000 an hour. So the idea is to put infrastructure, just like uh, Amazon Web Services or something like that, where you have a business idea, to spin up all the infrastructure that you need to create that idea. That's a bad idea to go do that these days. It's really just bring your business model and uh, up you go and you spin up your stuff. You incrementally test, validate your business model, and then you further reinvest into that idea, much like Netflix. Netflix bought all into AWS. And so you stream video at home using AWS infrastructure. And Netflix has a lot of infrastructure, but they really, the thing that delivers the experience is something on top of uh, someone else's infrastructure. And they themselves are a billion dollar business, right? So that's the idea of infrastructure in space is to be able to get around some of the, the limitations and the time scales as well. So you can really test, validate, and then what the problem here for commercialization is there's no way to merge the test and validation with really deployment of the technology. So we're trying to converge those two things in with infrastructure that we're building. That, that's that's known issue with human spaceflight is that you can't do some of those things. Christopher, you have anything to add? Yeah, I was just building off of that. I know people try to be creative with doing some more dangerous experiments without the human component involved. Like there was a recent uh, Cygnus spacecraft by Northrop Grumman after it completed a commercial resupply mission. When it detached from the space station, they did a a propagation of fire experiment on board the Cygnus. So it was safe and then it was detached from the station. It had already delivered its supplies, but they came up with an ingenious way to run an experiment because that's just going to burn up in the atmosphere, that Cygnus, once they loaded with their trash on the space station that they've accumulated, it's just going to burn up. And somebody had a a, a pretty good idea on, hey, why don't we take advantage of that vehicle to do an experiment that would be too dangerous to do on board the space station. And so they they use different materials to see their burn rates and how the the flame behaves in that zero gravity, microgravity environment. And so there are are always engineers that are trying to think outside of the box on, on how can we use some of the assets that are up there, use them in a different way kind of expand those experiments we can do moving into that area of things that would be too dangerous to do actually on board the ISS. Interesting. Okay, next question. I'm going to start off with Angelo on this one. What will be the most significant advancement you see in space commerce or travel within the next decade? 
Oh my God, that's that's. Such yeah, I know a it's an open open end <laughs> question, but uh, I just holy, just holy shortly. What do you think? No pressure. Yeah, no pressure, right? <laughs> um, it's the future space, Angelo. <laughs> I mean, a more sustainable. I mean, it's it, it's nothing that we don't we don't hear about in the news, honestly. A more sustainable presence on the moon beyond footprints and flags. Something that looks like you know humanity civilization finally gets a foothold on 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 the moon, and we're there to stay in in one way or another, in a in a multicultural way, not just one or two nations, but really more than a combination of nations. I think that that'll be. I really look at this as an expansion of the the shell of human civilization beyond the sphere of Earth, reaching all the way to the moon. I mean, I think that's one of them. And then the second one is is space tourism. I mean, it's been it's been going on for such quite some time now, and like with many of these advancements, there might be a few attempts that fail, but sooner or later it's gonna it's gonna bootstrap itself and it's gonna run run on its own. And, and maybe the first examples of the first demonstrations of space tourism are not gonna be as lucrative or as sustainable as they were promised to be. But I think after some time it's it's gonna be a part of, of our of, of humanity's experience. I'm gonna chime in and I'm gonna say um, and, and excuse me for being a SpaceX shareholder, I'm gonna say Starship. <laughs> if that works, it, it changes absolutely everything. It's a hundred ton plus capacity to lower of orbit. Uh, potentially a few hundred dollars. I mean, you cannot overstate the impact. And then they want to basically refuel in, or- in orbit uh, once they're up there, which would then enable to take the 100 tons plus to, to the moon, kind of going to Angelo's point. That would change everything on the moon. It's completely, it's, it's, yeah. it's two magnitudes of different scale from what we've done before. Like the lunar module from Apollo, the other guys can correct me, but I think it had about three to four tons of payload. 100 tons, you can bring habitats, you can bring machinery, you can bring, you know, energy generation equipment, I mean, you name it. Rafael and Angelo make some really good points about um, things that are going to really shift the economics is uh, one thing that's going to happen. When you take humans far away from, from the Earth, even 400 kilometers, that, that, that's a, a big deal. From a longevity standpoint, humans don't thrive in that environment. E- even if they have some relative protections from the outside vacuum of space, they you stay in space long enough, you had chicken pox as a kid, you're going to get shingles very quickly. There's things that we, we are now discovering about the human body. So where we go far away and very quickly, we also have to have the ability to not take humans with us. And I think the sheer elements of autonomy is spectacular. All of these things require the autonomous nature of these devices, infrastructure, making decisions on, on their own. That has far-reaching impacts, not just on our expansion out from the Earth, but on Earth. And I take that very seriously. We're baking that into every step of what we're doing, but so are other people. I think that that is going to be something so profound. One, from the workforce that it, it creates to establishing people's access to a couple hundred dollars to get to your thing to space, whatever that that is, as Raphael was saying, access to that creates overnight, another middle class, another class of people that are establishing even new industries altogether. So that's really going to be a fascinating thing. Oh, real quick. I just want to know what Christopher thinks. Just real quick. I was going to direct my question to Christopher because... (laughs) Okay. So, Chris, okay. so I'm going to have Joe, I'm going to have you answer yeah. that because we do oh. want your feedback, but I want yep. you to, my question to add on, which I think is going to segue, you do educate people, you do know NASA, 
your, well, I want to hear your opinion, but I want to also elaborate. And I don't know if you're getting this question with kids because obviously our future is kids and people moving into this space, literally. I know what you guys are all saying, Dan, Angela, Rafa, you know, you, you got to test stuff that's not with humans, right? Yeah, that's safety. But I have not a lot of med tech of, like you said, Dan, what happens on the medical side to humans. You were talking about sustainable life and what's going on, biospheres out there, but there, I've not seen med tech to handle what goes on if human life is capable of living up there. And then not to get too weird about this, but there are animals, you know, we don't test on animals in the cosmetic and the beauty industry anymore. So if we're talking about sustainability in the future out there, to Joe's point, where is all the med tech? Because I haven't seen anything and animals cannot be tested on. It's becoming more and more prevalent in beauty and in everything we do, food administration, drugs, pharmas. How is all of this becoming, how is our future so focused on tech up there, but we have human life animals and medical that I think are more important for sustainability up there than just the technology. I know it's a big question, but I kind of want you to kick off, Chris, because you educate the public and answer these questions. And I think the rest of the guys, I kind of want to hear their answers on that as well. Quickly to answer the question that was going around, EECLIS, kind of a closed loop system is something I'm looking forward to, to see if they can environmental control life support systems, if we can get to a a point where we're in a closed loop where we don't need constant resupply missions, be it the ISS, or if you have a base on the moon or Mars where you can use in situ resources and your environment. And if it's making methane for rocket fuel to go back or ice into rocket fuel and oxygen and water for drinking, you know, uh, trying to get to that hundred percent kind of closed loop. So that was the, my, what I was going to throw in for that previous question. And then to your other point, on the student level, as was mentioned earlier, you know, there's student experiments on, on biofilms. That's a huge issue for building up in waste compartments and clogging lines and can be a huge issue. So there's students that are doing experiments on how to combat that to nutrition, to exercise. There's also an experiment to your question, sir, that's, that's in the drawing board stage. It hasn't been sent yet, but there's a uh, experiment to look into some of those life issues on, uh, it would be sending rats to orbit the moon in a capsule that would have food supplies for them and that they'd be allowed to reproduce and you'd kind of see the exposure of radiation. How does that affect in reproduction in multiple generations and some of the factors that might be important to future explorers, you know, long-term on the moon or Mars and the things we've been talking about. So there are some of those things that have been drawn up they haven't happened yet, but I think an experiment like that would be a huge benefit to answering some of the questions and the concerns to a long-term presence of people in any of those environments, uh, staying long-term. And a lot of student experiments are happening around that on nutrition, on exercise, on uh, biofilms, as I mentioned, and that. So, but you know, the commercial airlock that's happening on the ISS, I think that's going to open up, you know, nano racks and things. That's going to open up a lot of opportunities to people sending up more experiments on the things we're talking about, where it's going to be the commercial side and they're going to figure out the answers to some of those questions. Yeah. Well, so Dan mentioned, like if you had chicken pox, when you're little, you go up there over extended time, you could, you could get shingles easier. It's a, it's narrowing it down on the medical side to the cellular level of our bodies and aging or anti-gravity. I mean, have you guys, I mean, I know you guys focus on a whole other aspect of sustainability up there, but is the med advanced med tech, 
course, based on human cells and how they age and the gravity. Have you guys seen anything come out on this or are you guys looking into anything in that area? Yeah, absolutely. So a lot of the things that we explore from this, our science directorate and then my past deal with uh, telomeres, all kinds of interesting things from aging to infectious disease and its impacts to cellular uh, architectures in, in microgravity environments, irradiative effects on crops and things like that. But I, I think w- what's most fundamental here, there's two elements that I look at is one, the optics and the, the microscopy that's uh, enabling us to understand this stuff is fairly limited in, in space. It's just the, the, the types of optics and space hardened hardware that you have to use in space is not the same thing as like a, a commercial drug discovery microscope from Olympus, something like that. The other thing is how to, how to manufacture drugs and 3D print drugs in case you get shingle far away. So maybe looking at um, how we can bring certain types of plants to space, grow them, but also deliver drugs from the plants that are grown to people who are in in space. The the last bit of that is um, the idea of the internet of living things. The, The connectivity of both digital and living is going to converge. And we need to test these things and isolate them in, in microgravity environments. And that's something really cool. So if you want to learn more about that, feel free to let me know offline. But that that, that is a very fascinating convergence of technology. Angelo, you have, you know, you talk about biology and bioscience. Is this an area of interest to you or that you have any insight on? Yeah, in terms of space medicine, it's um, we're actually, we have to discuss the topic of human augmentation. I mean, as uh, Dan previously indicated, humans generally don't thrive in space. Even astronauts, they often have issues with their body. Even if when when they're going on camera, they usually take a deep breath to pretend everything's perfectly fine. But often there is something going on with the body that is not as pleasant as they, they want it to be. And so we really need to address that topic of human augmentation. But it's a very sensitive topic because it's it's an ethical minefield, of course. Are we going to improve humans and adapt humans, evolve humans specifically to thrive better into space? Now, there are a few options here. And one of them is that there is genetic predisposition. There are people that are better able to cope with radiation than others, and that's and in, in, in it's coded in their genes. So you could start to screen future astronauts for this particular genetic makeup and then only send those that have a, a better resistance to radiation. But there are other things like gene therapy. There might be ways in the future in which astronauts are using intensive gene therapy to adjust to space combined with drugs. And so this this idea of human augmentation is not like we're going to genetically modify a baby into a future astronaut. It's more about using a suite of different technologies to to adjust the human body to outer space. Raphael, can you do you guys see the you know investors coming to you looking at something like this? Okay, I'm looking for it. I mean, I, I know some of our own investors, our LPs are interested in that as well. But even if they weren't, I think we're hugely interested in that. Obviously, the whole, what we call life sciences, so pharma and biotech, is one of the biggest industries on earth. So I would take that that question that, that Sarah kind of labeled as medtech and actually split it into two parts. Because one part is basically uh, what Angela was just talking about is, is making sure that humans, whether they're explorers or in the the future, maybe even settlers, that they can survive in the space environment. And that's one side. 
But the other side is what some of the guys have also alluded to is basically using the space environment to manufacture drugs or other medical devices, which can be beneficial to us here on Earth. And this has been going on for a while. I'll give you a simple example. Um, one thing that um, astronauts experience as soon as they're in microgravity is, is very accelerated uh, bone loss. So we've actually had at least a couple of osteoporosis drugs, which were substantially helped with the development of, of experiments on the space shuttle. Interesting. I, I just feel like there's like so many more topics we have to discuss with you guys. Obviously, gene therapy, cellular level, we have med tech, we have we haven't even got into the robotics of any of this yet up there. And I, I just feel like this series, it has another series to this series with all of you guys on here. And I, I know you guys are calling in from overseas and it's getting late there on Saturday. Joe, let's wrap. Do you have another question to wrap up the podcast before I have my <laughs> stupid question? Okay, I have. We all, we all know what my question is going to be. Guys. I was thinking about this all week and I wrote down a bunch of questions, but you know, I'm going to go with kind of like, the simple question here besides and, door number one <laughs> yeah well yeah this is like door number 56 here <laughs> i really want to go out on a limb here and i just want to know what do you think will we ever find evidence of sentient intelligent life within the next 50 to 100 years on another planet i'm on the advisory board of seti so i'm biased wait, wait, wait what is seti so i'm I, sorry I can Dan. This off. Dan, um, what's i would SETI? say yes whether it is current with our another living thing currently that's tbd but finding evidence yes i i do think so um, we're honing in on where and how to look for those types of signatures there's a, a an equation um by a gentleman frank drake who came up with the, the drake equation it, it tells us basically the statistical probability of intelligent life in the galaxy and the universe and we may have been thinking about the, the the equation still plays out, but we may have been thinking about the probability of, of discovering something that it has that signature, but we're just not quite looking at it properly or, or understanding what it is or how it came to be. There is a an asteroid that passed by us and it had these weird characteristics, it became a very contentious astronomical body because the way it was uh, careening through our our solar system. It itself may have been some philosophy uh, around it sees it as a potential solar sail on a, a giant scale. Some others see it as it's just another asteroid just has some wonk characteristics and we'll discover more about more interesting bodies uh, because of the way we found this one. I think that just the sheer question is enabling us to arrive at the emergent truths about this stuff. Wait, wait, Dan, what is SETI? You mentioned SETI in the beginning. What is that? Search for extraterrestrial intelligence. Okay. And it is a, a body in Silicon Valley. It started uh, with the aspirations of a guy named Carl Sagan. And it now is under the stewardship of a, an amazing world-class set of scientists. And Bill Diamond is the, the executive director. There. Um, uh, Jill Tarter, if you've all seen Contact, Mm -hmm. uh, the movie with Jodie yeah. Foster. Jodie Foster's character is emulated off of uh, a woman named uh, Jill Tarter, who is still chasing after signals, but in new ways with machine learning, AI, uh, other types of things. So I do think, to answer the question, I do think towards the end of our lifespan as Gen Xer, me, the bald guy with the beard, 
I do think towards the end of my life, we will have discovered that. Uh, Raphael, Angela, Chris, I kind of want all of your input on this, but uh, to Dan's point, this is going to sound so wonky on a podcast, extend the answer to is the life form microbes and just kind of like antibodies and stuff on these asteroids or not to go down to the whole alien little green men road, but I mean, how extensive is the evolution of intelligent life? If you guys could quickly answer that and, you know, as I'm on top of Joe's other question, that'd be great. Well, I, I think obviously the microbial life is more likely, right? I mean, we needed about 4 billion years to get from to where we are today as humans, right? So that's that's a very basic statistical point. With life in general, I mean, some people are not even agreeing on the definition of life. Although I think there's now sort of a sort of accepted definition that's basically something that has metabolism. So, you know, it eats waste, um, it reproduces and, and it evolves, right? But beyond that, the definition is wide open. It may not be carbon-based. It, it may not like use DNA. So we may not even know what we're looking for. This is not trivial. Um, having said all of this, you know, I tend to agree with Dan that there's probably a likelihood that we'll, we'll find life. Yes. And I had uh, SETI at home in my computer, which was great. It would chunk and chew on data to use your CPU to uh, work on the data. So I'd always smile when I could see SETI at home was active on my computer and was uh, going through the data. So I've, I've been a, a strong supporter of them. And yes, and I'm intrigued by the concept on our time scale and our evolution based on when our part, you know, our star formed and our planets formed. And obviously what we're looking for could be on a much different scale where it's an older star, an older system, you know, that developed. So I'm intrigued by the concept of that we will find them, but on the time scales of how things evolve and live and die, will we find a remnant of a past? alien existence that that ran its cycle of its millions of years and now has died out? Or will we find one in their younger stage of evolutionary, mid-evolutionary uh, phase? So I think we will. It just be interesting to me which one we kind of discover first. And again, as has been mentioned before, you know, we're carbon-based. It could be something else. And we, we know radio signals and that, but it, it could be completely different transmissions and communication systems and uh, biosignatures. And we just may not know the full spectrums of what we're looking for. And the great way I show this to kids when we talk about it is on based on the kind of the spectrum of visible light, what we can see versus all the other spectrums that are out there, you know, infrared and x-ray and that. And the kids really kind of get that. Then they can wrap their head around it because I talk about how these telescopes can image in these different layers. And maybe kids have experience with seeing an x-ray when they went to the dentist. And that's, that's a way to visualize an x-ray. But, you know, there's radio waves happening all around you and you don't see them. And there's x-rays happening and you don't see them. So that the kids can kind of get the light bulb moment on that. that there's, there's many different ways to hunt and see things. And we just may not be looking in the right area the right way. And then to follow this up with Angelo, the biologist. I am very interested <laughs> to hear what the biologist has to say about this. Yeah, as a space biologist, I think it's it's we can expect to find life outside Earth. I think it's quite probable. It'll probably the first life we're going to discover is probably going to be microbial life. I don't want to necessarily say simple life because microbes can be quite complicated in, in their own way. So I think for most biologists, actually, and most space biologists, it's quite it seems quite normal, you know, that we'll find something out there. If we're going to find life 
outside of the solar system also seems quite probable uh, nearby stars. I mean, we can still investigate those stars without it, without having to go there. So we can look for signatures that could indicate life. So I think all of that is quite probable and will probably happen, happen in our lifetime. Jumping to civilizations and technology is a whole different story, of course. And I always, I always think that intelligence is not conducive for survival. And that's a really uh, what is really what is really interesting. For example, humans with all our intelligence at a certain point, we had like seventy thousand nuclear warheads in the eighties. I mean, this is a kind of existential threat that we built for ourselves, which is very typical. Which seems to be very typical for intelligence. We don't consider bacteria to have the, to have the kind of intelligence we're talking about now. They would survive us after a nuclear. Uh, catastrophe. So I think I think that's really where, where where things get a little tricky because let's look at time. The universe is about how how old is it? Uh, about 14, wow. 14 billion years old, roughly. Solar system is about uh, four point six billion years old, and then related to this, multicellular life is only six hundred million years old. That's really a very tiny window within those big stretches of time. So having civilizations overlap in time and even being capable of communicating with each other seems very unlikely. So I think it's going to be very difficult to find other civilizations. So let's say that I, I'm not expecting to find other signs of civilizations within our lifetime. You never know down the road. Okay, so, so, so I, you know, I know we're running out of time and I just feel like we're excited to kind of expand our series with you guys, but and I know Chris, Joe, and I had this conversation a little more in depth towards the end of our podcast. Like what movies and what binge watching we've been doing that you feel most replicates what our future up there looks like. And I know, Chris, we talked about this because my I was obsessed with Expanse um, time. Yeah. Okay, so so I was gonna I'm not gonna go down the Mandalorian side <laughs> and all the cool stuff, but expanse to me, honestly, and I don't know if there's a next season, I'm hoping there is, is the most realistic. You have the transportation up there, the belt people who live in between. But guys, I want to know what everybody, because everybody has their own inspiration and motivation, whether it's movies, art, film, science, whatever's motivated, inspiring you to create what's going on at work and through your life. What are you watching and what's going on that has the most realistic our future? Because I know, Chris, I'm still hooked on the expanse. Has that changed with you or are you still on that? Oh, no, I'm still on that. And there is another season, the final season, the, the next one coming up. And then they've teased there might be more of the story, like in a movie format or something like that, because there's more books than there are seasons in the, the series thus far. So, yeah, The, the Expanse is, is fantastic. And all the offshoots of that with the graphic novels and whatnot. So that's a lot of fun. And Dan mentioned, uh, I was laughing because he mentioned Contact. And I was just on TV the other day. I was flipping around the horn and I landed on contact. My wife's like, don't you own this movie? And I'm like, yeah, but it's on. So you got to have it on. But that I remember what impact that had on me when I was younger. And I, I think it does, a, it raises some great questions and it deals with some things in a, in a very smart way for being a big uh, Hollywood movie. So uh, I still smile at some of the, the questions brought up and, and the way uh, that interaction played out. So yeah, I think those are really important. Those get you excited about what we're talking about and uh, get you thinking about the different ways things could play out or when that discovery will happen. Or as all the kids I'm working with are so excited and we were talking about the Mars helicopter and that mission, you know, uh, it driving around that 
uh, alluvial fan area and that basin, you know, where water was flowing through. That's that's just really exciting because of the potential to, you know, what why they're there is the potential for maybe some fossilized microbial life. You know, well, as we would find in a similar environment here on Earth, if we were in that dried up lake bed alluvial fan uh, area, if we we're digging around, you might find some fossilized microbial life here on Earth. The potential for that to be happening on Mars would be a huge uh, discovery if, if the rover can find something like that. So. Yeah, and, and we all we all saw what was the Matt Damon. It was Mars, right? The yep. Martian. Like, that Martian. Martian. How sustainable it was, Angelo. Like, well, what are you watching, and what have you seen that is the most realistic replica of? You know, they say art imitates life, and vice versa. What are you watching, and what have you binged through that you feel is the most inspiring to what's actually our future up there in space? To me, it's not like it doesn't have to be realistic to be really helpful or to be inspiring. It can be it can be something different entirely, as long as it makes you think more critically about what we expect from the future. And and like I said at the beginning of the, the, the interview here, questioning paradigms that we carry with us in how we shape our future. And I have to agree with Chris. The Expanse is, of course, a very interesting series. But I think one of the, the really interesting things about The Expanse is that it really is the, is, the, is the first series that dives into the idea of the post-planetary. The post-planetary condition is, a con and it's different than the multi-planetary species. We're talking about post-planetary, which means that humanity is spread out throughout the solar system in different configurations. We're not just living on the surface of spheres any longer, not on the surface of Earth and the moon, but really some people are living like in an asteroid belt, in space stations, and it, it will generate a whole different aspect to civilization. And it will, it will engender alienation between these different people and with that political strife and conflict. And I think that's what's so brilliant about, about the expanse. But on the other hand, what I'm also really interested in is communication and the difficulty of communication if we do find other life forms and how, we, how are we going to relate to them? Not just from an ethical perspective, but also how are we going to actually exchange information? I, I think Arrival is, for me, one of the best science fiction movies of the, of the, of the past decade, I guess, which was a, a really brilliant, very smart movie about uh, communication with aliens, but in, in, in not such a typical spectacular way, in a, I think. And then, for example, the books of Stanislav Lem, who wrote basically the Solaris, which is quite a famous movie, was made both in Russia and in America. And he really has a whole body of work dealing with that really profoundly trying to, to, to explore how do we communicate with something that is really alien and not alien in a kind of ridiculous way, but alien in all kinds of ways. And, and, and so we, we can't even understand what the goals of that entity are. And, and, and how do we deal with that? I think those are really questions that I'm looking for when I'm watching uh, science fiction, for example. Nice. Raphael? I think I'll, I'll round that out. And Angela, the movie Arrival is very special. And I think that there was critical acclaim for it, but I think from being a another handsome bald man with a, a beard, <laughs> second I think, one. I think everybody's <laughs> going to go on the website and know exactly who you and Angelo are. <laughs> uh, I I think that movie thinks about the the way in which time works, the way we as humans are limited in our ability to even understand some of these things is very special. Because of that, I, I've revisited like I. I read a, a bunch of uh, Philip K. Dick books throughout the years over and over again, those types of things. But I, I think 
one book in particular, especially where we are in history, is really special and it prescience and it, it, its forethought is a book by Carl Sagan called The Demon Haunted World. And that is a very spectacularly written book. And it, you, if you haven't read it, I highly recommend it because of what has unfolded throughout the last, say, decade. It will scare the bejesus out of you. And I highly recommend it. Wait, you're, you're not a big Expanse fan, Dan? Have I haven't taken time, so I can't say yes or no on it yet. There's people weighing in on it here, so I will definitely check it out. But There's I like three, four of the Expanse. We've all been through the very end of it. So I think that needs to be are your homework to start watching The Expanse. I definitely will check it out. <laughs> Raphael, where are you in all of this? I absolutely love The Expanse. And it's, ah, it's, so it's four against two now, just for it's, the it's record. Most, it's, it's mostly for the reasons that, that, that Angelo alluded to that, you know, I think science fiction should ask hard questions and make us think about the future and beyond what sort of the next gadget should, could be. And so where The Expanse excels is basically it's, it's political science, political or sociological, whatever you want to call it, science fiction as well. It shows us how the society could look like and we can all make our judgment of whether that's good or bad and whether we have to do something to maybe prevent it or promote that, depending on what your point of view is. So that's one, one hard question is like, what, what is our future society? And it's also treated in other science fiction, like the Mars, the Mars trilogy, for example, an excellent series of books. Uh, the other hard question, which I think way too little science fiction is tackling head on is the future role of artificial intelligence. And I'm saying this as somebody who has a graduate level degree in AI myself. So I know a little bit what I'm talking about. And I mean, I don't think it's like Star Trek where you have like one Android. I mean, give me a break. You know, I think very few examples who are taking this head on is um, Battlestar Galactica, another series, which I really, really love to death. And I'm just rewatching that. And then there's uh, a couple of good books which sort of explain it, like the, um, the Hyperion ser series uh, by Dan Simmons, which basically, they basically say the AI evolved, it was much more evolved than us, and it went away. And it turned out it didn't go away, without spoilers. But anyway, and then a last sort of hard question to ask, which we touched upon is sort of what happens if you make alien contact? And of course, uh, alien contact not with mi microbial life, but with more advanced life. And of course, the life could be significantly more advanced than us. So again, to Angela's point, because the, the time overlap is so improbable, if actually some civilization suddenly survived for hundreds of millions of years, they could be so far ahead of us that it would be very scary almost, right? And again, there isn't that many probably books that treat that in a really exhaustive way. Um, the best one I can think of there recently is uh, the Three-Body Problem series, which is an absolutely amazing book. So, Joe, we've had like, like between the shows, between books, what, what are your space inspirations right now? Of course, Star Trek. I mean, I've always been a fan <laughs> since the 60s. But one I've really, really, really haven't started to enjoy is For All Mankind, produced by Ronald Moore, and it's on Apple TV. And I think that gives, even though it's set in an alternate timeline where the Russians land on the moon first, and then it pushes the U.S. government to really invest into space and space exploration to kind of keep on trying to outdo the Russians, I think that is an excellent, excellent series. And I think it gives, you know, it's a what about series, but I think it's a very, very well done. Nice. So quick question. And I, I, I'm going to ask this quickly before you wrap, Dan. Are, and actually for actually all of you guys, are there, I mean, it's all about education and educating people. We have the books, we have the movies, we have our shows. Are there any case studies that you guys have done that could be accessible? Because I don't know, for some reason, Dan, I keep thinking Arcasis has done case studies that they've published or papers, but I'm not sure if that's accurate. Are there any people could actually go download and find 
to educate themselves more on this? We are building, we have an amazing industrial designer with us, um, helping us think through some of these case studies and translating them into, uh, we have that fun video that, that kind of boils down what we're doing very quickly. It's, a, it's about a minute of your time to watch that. But what if this thing existed in all the use cases? Uh, we have an industrial designer and some animation people who are helping us and they're all Hollywood-based experts and they're going to help us do that. So we are definitely on, t- on top to do it. We, we don't have anything designed to download right now, but just give us a, a little bit more time, probably later summer as things kick in, we're going to be doing that specifically. So, and help tell stories that are easily digestible, but really break the brain if you really think about it. So I, and I think that's critical to tell stories in a, an appropriate ma- manner that are scientifically sound, but also inspiring. Yeah, guys, is there any of you guys have any case studies that are published or a place you go to that's available to the general public? Yes, if if anybody's interested in concepts of about evolving and self-developing starships, which is my current my current research focus, I basically got most of my stuff up on ResearchGate, which is like a, a kind of a, an, an open platform where you can download most of my publications. Some of my publications are more academic, but a lot of them are also for a much wider audience. So just go and look me up on ResearchGate and you can download quite a lot of uh, things there. Perfect. Okay, guys, so I'm going to kind of run through here. Angelo, for anybody who has any questions or wants to reach you, where's the best way to reach you right now? I'm on most social media channels, so you can find me on Instagram, on Twitter, Facebook, LinkedIn. You can find me there and contact me there. Okay, great. Chris, what's a great way to reach you for anybody? Social media would be Space St. Croix, so it's S-P-A-C-E-S-T-C-R-O-I-X. So if you type in that, I'm on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, all that stuff. And you're also available on the, like, you know, for teachers, for schools, for educating the, you know, this is something that you're actually open for. So anybody who does need somebody with the experience to come in to sit down, do science, math classes, educate students or whoever, they could find you to do that on. Yeah. And we're doing things, we're doing things virtually, obviously with the COVID situation. So I've been doing presentations all around the world. So uh, if anybody reaches out and then also through the uh, NASA solar system ambassador, if you just type in solar system ambassador, you'll find the NASA website and it's just by my name. Uh, I'm in Wisconsin. So it kind of breaks it down by, by country and by state rather in the United States. So if you go to Wisconsin, you'll find me at the drop down or there if you want to request a presentation or a program. We do all age groups from two to 99. So perfect. Raphael, where is a good place to find you? Um, and then you have your podcast too for space people. So where should we send everybody for you? That's right. That's actually not a bad place to go because the podcast, again, it's called the Space Business Podcast and it's on all major platforms, but it also has a Twitter account and the Twitter account is managed by, by one of my staff who's probably a lot better at sort of monitoring incoming messages than, <laughs> than I am personally myself sometimes. Having said that, uh, you, cannot, you can find me on LinkedIn too. Okay. And Dan? LinkedIn is always good. I am, again, if you, if you want to get more info about Arcasis, you can go to just our website. Most of that stuff percolates up to me, as well as the SETI uh, website has my contact information uh, on the advisory uh, council and a nonprofit that I am a, an executive on. It's called the Norfolk Institute, looking at longevity and uh, agriculture and habitation in space. Perfect. It sounds like somebody's dog needs to have a say in this as well. Okay, guys, it's been wonderful having you guys on here. I just think the collaboration podcast, 
uh, white papers, you know, education. Like everybody could reach out to us on the podcast. We're happy to connect you with these outstanding gentlemen on here. But guys, thank you so much for taking some time on a Saturday to do this with us. I really appreciate it. And thanks for uh, answering these questions too. (laughs) I I know some of them are very basic, but it was, it was great. Thanks for having us on. Yeah. Thanks for having us. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. Looking forward to the, to the edit. Yeah. Yeah. So Joe, thanks so much for getting up on a Saturday to do the podcast with me. No problem. Our Guardians of the Galaxy, you guys, this has been tremendous. But for now, this is Sarah Miller with Media Mavens Podcast. Thank you for joining us for this episode of the Media Mavens Podcast. If you don't want to miss an episode or download past episodes, subscribe to the Media Mavens Podcast on your favorite podcast provider or on the Evergreen Podcast Network. To learn more about the podcast or our guests, log on to www.mediamavenspodcast.com. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.